after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Psalm chapter 31. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there might be a hardback uh, black Bible underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to try to grab one of those and flip open with us. We're going to start in Psalm 31, and then though, after a couple seconds, we'll flip to Luke 1. So if you want to get real advanced and kind of open up to both, put a finger somewhere, you can try that out this morning. We'll start in Psalm 31. Welcome, glad that you are here. My name is Mike Skinner. Again, I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, we're happy that you have joined us for service this morning. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Family Portraits. And so what we're doing is we are going through the mission statement that we have here at the church and then the core values that we have at the church as well. And so we started last week and we'll keep on walking through that this morning. All families have certain things that they share in common, certain characteristics, certain traits. They run in the gene pool. And then even just being around uh, people, being around someone for that much time, you start to imitate, you start to look like and act like that person. So i got a couple quick exercises for you this morning, okay? So I know I told you to put your fingers places, so this is not going to work very well for you. But take your hands and get them out like this, okay? And then without thinking, what I need you to do, okay, is clasp your hands together. Now look down. If your left thumb is on top, okay, if your left thumb is on top of your right thumb, raise your hand. Just about maybe three-fourths of the room, okay, that's a dominant trait. Apparently, what makes you put your left hand on top of your right hand is actually in your DNA, okay? That's not just the way your body's organized. That's actually they can find that gene inside of you, okay? I'm not a biology person, so that's as much as I have, but it's some kind of, it's some kind of dominant trait, okay? If you look down at your fingers... There's, there's three parts to your fingers here, okay? Um, this middle part, if you look, do you see there's hair on any of those on the middle part, okay? I won't ask you to admit it, okay? I know that <laughs> the woman in here wouldn't raise her hand at all, but that is also a, that's something you get from your parents, okay? Um, whether you have hair there or not. Um, this is a fun one. Can you roll your tongue like that? Apparently not everyone can do that, okay? That's a dominant trait from your parents. You can only do that if your parents can do that. There are all kinds of these traits that you get, okay? Like, like even a widow's peak, okay? Supposedly, uh, you get from, uh, from your parents. Yeah, they know. They're on the secret, okay? Uh, if you weren't here last week, I have a widow's peak. My parents don't have a widow's peak, okay? You do the math. Sometimes. Something's missing, so... All that was actually a test. I'm going to compare your answers later to the, the tongue rolling and, and the hair on your fingers. Um, so how you look, how you act, these things are determined by what family you are in. And even in my experience working with youth, okay, being a youth pastor, I'm speaking at youth camps, teaching, um, you see, I mean, kids look and act just like their parents. There are these, these traits that run in families. And, and this is one of the metaphors we have as the church, okay, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, so not only do we inherit some of the same DNA by worshiping the same God, being adopted into his family, but we spend time around each other. And so at the church, we have some core values, and these are what we like to think of like our, our family traits, okay? These are the things that we want people to know us by. So our mission statement is to glorify God by making disciples, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have four core values to get us there. The first one is accepting unconditionally. We talked about that last week. Then we have trusting God. We have teaching the next generation, and we have serving selflessly. Okay, so this morning, um, we're going to talk about the core value of trusting God. Uh, so the verse we'll start out in is in Psalm 31. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Psalm 31, verse 14, trusting God. The psalmist says this, But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. 
But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. Um, We want to be a church, the kind of big idea of this core value. We want to be a church. We also want to be individuals who do this, but we want to be, as a church, we want to be people who freely trust God in radical obedience and joyful hope. The kind of visual we have for this is, is we want to be people who have open hands, okay, who live with open hands, who have given all of ourselves to God who have trusted him with everything, who don't close our hands around any part of our life or any part of ourselves. We want to live with open hands. We want to trust God with everything that we own, everything that we have, with all of who we are. And we want to have our hands open because we want to be ready to receive the blessings God has for us. Because we trust God to provide for us. We trust God to come true on his promises. And we want to be expectant. We want to be waiting. We want to be ready. We want to live with open hands. So now flip with me to Luke chapter 1, okay? To explore this core value of trusting God, I wanted to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now I know, don't get confused, it's not Christmas time, I'm aware, okay? Uh, I looked in the pastor rule book to see if it was against the rules to talk about Mary outside of Christmas. It's not, so we're good, all right? We have kind of those Protestants pushed Mary to the side, we kind of ignore if it's not Christmas time. Okay, if it's Christmas time, we'll give her a place. Other than that, we push her away. Now, there's some reasons for that. Okay, um, way back when the Protestants and the Catholics kind of split, and there's been these kind of reactionary attitudes and actions they've each taken. So, Protestants get real nervous because they perceive, rightly or wrongly, that Catholics put too much emphasis on Mary. So, Catholics will talk about Mary inside and outside of Christmas. Okay, um, we've kind of reacted by ignoring her completely. Probably too far in the, the wrong direction, right? Probably too reactionary. Um, I think maybe perhaps another reason we maybe don't give Mary the, the place she's due is because I think there's a history in the church of looking over women in the scriptures and kind of passing over the role and importance that they play um, in the narrative that, that the Lord has given us. Okay, But we want to look at, at Mary, and she's going to be kind of a key figure for us here and, and, and understanding and exploring what it means and what it looks like to trust God. Okay, So we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I was worried that the band was going to start playing Christmas carols Okay, when I'm done here. Don't, it's not Christmas, all right? But here we go, Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is a pretty extraordinary day for Mary, okay? The angel Gabriel shows up, and he says, hey, I've got news for you. She's at first a little frightened. This is the typical response to an angel showing up in the scriptures. Um, you're scared. And the angel kind of reassures her, don't, don't worry, okay? Don't, don't be afraid. He says, you're going to have a child, and your child is going to be the one that fulfills all of God's promises, So the Jewish people had this promise that a king would come and he would transform the world. He would bring the kingdom of God. He would fix what had gone wrong with creation. And the angel tells Mary, that's your kid who you're about to be pregnant with. 
And Mary's response, she's got a question, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I bet when Mary woke up, she did not think she'd be talking about her virginity with an angel, okay? But that's the way the day went for her. Um, Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who are called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, here's her response of faith. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So oftentimes we, as modern people, kind of have this arrogance toward ancient people. And we think they were so primitive, they didn't really know how the world worked, those kind of things. And so we, when we read the story of Mary, a virgin, okay, becoming pregnant, we think, how silly. Right? If only they would have known that's not how it works. One plus one equals a baby. Okay, you can't do that. But she understood, right? Ancient people understood this is not the way things happened. This is not the way it worked. And they also understood this. This is not the way God works or the way the law is set up to work or the way society works. Have you ever pondered, okay, just thought about how odd it is that when God wanted to fulfill his promises to creation to Israel, he decided to do it with a young girl born or with a young girl who got pregnant out of wedlock. How odd is that? Particularly for us in a very, and we want to protect the traditional family, right? No sex outside of marriage, um, no kids outside of marriage. If that happens, we're uncomfortable with it, okay? We kind of push it to the side. We kind of want to ignore it. That's very off limits to us. God comes in to fulfill all his promises, and that's how he does it. Now, I mean, Mary's not breaking rules, right? But that's what it's going to seem like. And this is God's plan to fulfill all of his promises. This, this young girl is going to get pregnant without being married, this is not typically how God works or how the law works or how our society works. And, and Mary's response here in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the classic, I think, example of trusting God. Um, we often take this for granted. We take it for granted, I think, that Mary was, was okay with this. I think, though, when you read the story, when you really understand what's happening, the biggest surprise of the story is that Mary's okay with this. That she has that one question, and then she's on board. So let's, let's walk back through to what would have been happening, okay, in, in Mary's world and in her mind back in the day. She would have been, scholars say, um, 13 to 16 years old. So the lowest most people will, will guess is 13, and the highest they'll usually go 16. So this is a, a young girl from our standards, okay? 13 to 16-year-old. She's engaged to Joseph. Now, in the first century, um, for Jews, when you were engaged, that was almost as good as being husband and wife just without sexual relations, okay? Um, which meant if she would have gotten pregnant while she was engaged, legally it would be considered adultery, okay? Not fornication, not just a single person doing something they're not supposed to. It would have been her cheating on Joseph. She realized this, okay, I'm engaged to Joseph. This is not Joseph's kid. This is what it's going to seem like. Now, the law, the Torah, Deuteronomy 22, the law for one who gets pregnant outside of her fiancé is death by stoning in Deuteronomy 22. This is in Mary's mind when she receives this news. They're going to suspect me of being an adulteress. The punishment for that, okay, is death by stoning. Now, scholars have a hard time figuring out, because the Israelites had some of these harsh, harsh laws, okay, like stoning. Did you know, okay, on Mother's Day, um, there's actually a law in the Old Testament that if you're disrespectful to your parents, you are killed, okay? I mean, that, that's in there, okay? Good news for the parents, all right? Throw that verse out every now and then. Um, 
So sometimes we wonder, were some of these harsher laws ever really enacted? I mean, did people ever actually do these things? Because um, we, we'll see over time, tradition kind of changes the way it works and puts rules and regulations in place to protect people. Um, maybe perhaps way back when in, in the ancient world, they might have actually stoned adulterers. Um, but by the time of the first century, they started doing something else, okay, to prosecute people they considered adulterers. And it was called the Law of Bitter Waters. And they take this from Numbers 5, okay, where this practice is instituted. What would happen, because life is messy, okay, if we're honest, if a woman got pregnant and it wasn't her husband's, um, they had to figure out a way to see if, if it was really adultery, right? She might have claimed to be raped. Or she might have claimed that it was the husband's child and he was lying, right, about what went on. And so there are all these gray areas that they had to figure out. So they had this law of bitter waters. What would happen? And this is what Mary's facing, okay, in the first century, is you would take the woman to court, probably in Jerusalem, you take them to the court, and you try to extract a confession. Now, if a confession didn't come, okay, if they had uh, an alibi, they had other claims, what you would do is you would enact the law of bitter waters. And so you would make this concoction, okay, with water. It usually involves some dirt, um, some, some other kind of not savory things, usually ink um, from the priest, his ink, you'd put it in there, okay, this real nasty kind of concoction of water. You would make her take her hair down, okay, which in this society is something you don't do in public. You don't do in front of a large, a large crowd. You would tear her clothes, okay. Um, the regulations from the first century seem to indicate you tear them at least enough so that one breast is showing. So, again, this is a huge no-no, okay. We're, we live in the Timberlake, okay, era, all right, where wardrobe malfunctions just happen sometimes. Back here, right, this is, this is not, something, not something you do. Um, you take your jewelry off, and then you would drink this concoction. Now, as you drink the, the bitter water, everyone's watching you, this is kind of publicly humiliating act, the priest would enact an oath um, of curse over you if you were lying. So if you were lying, the priest would um, bind God in an oath to have your belly swell and for your baby to die and for you to die. And this was the test, right? Did you get sick from drinking the water? If you did and you died, she must have committed adultery. She shouldn't have tried to lie to us and to God. If she didn't, I guess she didn't commit adultery, okay? Regardless of what you think about that, okay, whether you think that's a good idea or not, that's a good practice or not, this was a very common practice in the first century. Now, we know from our position in the story that Joseph doesn't do these things, right? Joseph doesn't take her to court. Joseph is this righteous guy. He, he hears from the Lord as well. He responds faithfully. But Mary doesn't know that here. Mary knows what the law tells Joseph he should do, which are these things. This is not something we, we should take for granted. When Mary hears these things and goes, I'm your servant. I trust you. And she throws herself in with, with faith to the plan that God has laid out for her. I mean, verse 38 is such an amazing example of faith, an amazing example of, of trusting God. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. With this act of faith, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus. But that was kind of fitting to talk about Mary on Mother's Day. Okay, the, mother of, the mother of Jesus. Have you ever thought about how much influence Mary had on Jesus? So we often sometimes, without really thinking too hard about it, think Jesus as a little kid just knows everything, right? So he's two years old and he knows quantum physics, okay? He knows the rotation of the galaxies. His mom comes like, clean your room up. He's like, don't talk to me, I'm God, okay? Uh, he's just this kind of like little enigmatic little boy, okay? Um, I don't think that's how you should think of Jesus. I think Jesus learns. I think he grows. I think we even have scriptural precedent for that. In Luke 4, Luke gives us the only story of Jesus as a little boy. And, and Luke tells us Jesus grew in wisdom, 
Jesus, he's fully human. He learns and grows just like you and I learned and grew. He learned and grew. And, and so the question that I'd like you to consider this morning is how much influence exactly did Mary have on Jesus? I think if you paid close attention to the Gospels, what you'd see is Mary's theology, her ideas about God and salvation, become Jesus' ideas about God and salvation and become the early church's ideas about God and salvation. Look with me to, to Mary's song here in verse 46. Mary sings a song, a poem, this remarkable poem. We often think of Mary as, again, this kind of in-the-background character, just real sweet, real mild, doesn't say much or do much, okay? Mary actually is this poor peasant girl who stands toe-to-toe with the powers. You remember Herod, King Herod at the time, wants her dead and her kid dead? Probably because she was saying stuff like this. Look in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Look in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Now, who would not like hearing things like that? The people on the thrones. In fact, it might even make them want to go get rid of these problems, which is what you see happening when Jesus is born. And you don't see Mary in the background, right, silent. You see Mary standing up and saying, this is what's happening with my child. God is casting down the oppressive, evil people on their thrones. And he's exalting those of humble estate. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Don't forget, Mary is a poor peasant in Israel in an occupied country under a foreign empire who's getting rich and getting filled while they're starving and dying. I mean, this very much has the sound of it, like kind of like 99 percenters, the Occupy movement, okay? Or if you watch last Batman, when, when Batwoman whispers to Batman and says, y'all have had your fill, but the storm's coming. I mean, this is very much what it's like. Y'all have all been getting rich. Y'all have been having your fill while we suffer. But God has shown up, and he's going to change some things drastically. Did you know this song was actually banned from being read in Guatemala in the 1980s? The government thought it was too subversive. They'd put you in prison. They'd kill you if they heard you reading this song. This is no, like, meek and mild Mary, right? This is a Mary who's willing to stand toe-to-toe with the powers and, and who really grasps what's going on here um, with the birth of her son, with the Davidic king coming into the world. Now, if you look closely at the things that Jesus says throughout his ministry, you'll find that they match up very closely with the themes in this song. And the question I'd like to ask you is, how much of that did Jesus get from his mother? Again, we, we kind of think Jesus has it all, right, at the beginning. But we should probably imagine Jesus growing up and learning things from his parents, like any boy does. His dad would taught him carpentry, would taught him things about the law. His mother would have also spent lots of time with him, talking to him, teaching him, teaching him songs, teaching him stories about God, showing him certain scriptures. When we see Jesus preaching these same exact things, how much of that can we trace back to his mother when he was a little boy. Or Jesus' brother, James. So he writes his own book, James. He has an epistle. He has lots of the same themes. And most people trace James's themes back to Jesus. James says these kind of things because Jesus said these kind of things. And James is the brother of Jesus, and James followed Jesus. What, though, again, if James got them from Mary as well? It seems like Mary trained up her kids, her kids pretty well. The question I just want to ask is, is, what if Mary's doing what all godly mothers should be doing? 
training up their kids in the ways of God, teaching them, instructing them, doing what Deuteronomy 6 told us. We just read it, right? Putting it in front of them constantly so that when Jesus and James grow up, this is what's inside of them. This is how they see the world. They're prepared to, to do the ministry that God has called them to. Mary becomes the mother of, of Jesus. Also with this act of faith in verse 38, Mary becomes the mother in a sense of the church. She becomes not only an example for what the church should look like, but also in a sense the mother, the start of the people who would follow Christ, the people who would be saved by him. Um, so in the New Testament, uh, different scriptures and different books constantly paint Jesus as the new character from different characters in the Old Testament. Um, so Matthew will talk about Jesus in a way that makes him sound like the new Moses. Just like Moses did certain things, now Jesus is doing them over, okay, in, in a much bigger, better, climactic way. Um, Hebrews talk about Jesus as the new Joshua, okay, or the new high priest. There are all these different things where Jesus is the new of something in the Old Covenant. But never once, and, and people have always wondered about this, never once does the New Testament portray Jesus as the new Abraham, which is an interesting fact, because Father Abraham, okay, is a very, very important character in the Old Testament. But if you really compare the characters in the New Testament closely, you'll see Mary is the new Abraham. Just like Abraham is called to go forth into a future, he doesn't know, that, he doesn't know what it will contain for him. And he responds in faith. And he steps out, and from him is born a group of people from whom will come the Messiah, from whom Mary is a part of as well. So Mary is called forth through a future she doesn't know, and her faith puts the plan of salvation in motion. God calls her to walk in faith, and from her comes both the Christ and also those who would believe in him and follow him. Mary is, is probably the first real Christian, the first real person who follows Christ. Think about this. The stories we have here, only she could have told them to people. She's the only one who could have had these stories be passed on in the church. Mary's probably the very first person to really start to work through what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, to think that he'll inherit the throne. In Luke 2, we're told she is pondering these things in her heart. She's treasuring them up. She's surely talking to Jesus about them. She's surely telling other people about them. We get these stories in our scriptures because she's been spreading the word, telling the stories. With this one act of faith, Mary um, becomes a huge player in God's plan of salvation. So what I want to do is look at the who, the why, and the what of trusting God. So I don't always give you nice three-point, okay, little sermons, but for you type A'ers, this is your day, okay? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. We're going to look at the who, the why, and the what of salvation. So first, the who uh, of trusting God, okay? And, and we'll um, play off of Mary's story here. I think it's important as Christians for you and I to define God, for us to name God, for us to know exactly what we mean when we use that word God. God, this three-letter word, is a really ambiguous, often unhelpful word. What I've found is that when I talk to people about God, usually we're talking about a different God. And they'll say, I don't believe in this kind of God, or I don't like this kind of God. And I'll say, well, well, I wouldn't believe in that God either, and I wouldn't like that God either. But here's the God that I know. Here's the God of the scriptures. Um, and I think this is one of the central tasks for Christians. Um, so Mary, the God that Mary is trusting, is a very specific God. If you look in Luke 1, verse 33. So verse 31, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. We'll call the son of the most high. This is a title for the God of Israel. Who had a name. His name was Yahweh. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Jesus will be the Davidic king. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. The kingdom, his kingdom will have no end. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You have this already here in, in, in Mary's experience, this triune description 
of, of God. Christians, when we say the word God, we mean something very specific by it. We mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in a, a triune God. Um, and for Christians, this is um, how we define God. And this makes a big difference in what it means to trust God, what it means to follow God, which God you are actually following and serving. Um, <coughs> Christians have also come to call her son God. The Christian claim is that Jesus is God himself. And in a sense, um, Mary then would be the mother of God. Theotokos is what the early church called it. In the Council of Ephesus, the church ruled that if you can't call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God, you're probably not a Christian. That was the language they used. The God-bearer. Now, this doesn't mean that um, Mary started the Trinity, right? She was before the Trinity, and she birthed the Trinity, right? It just means in space and time, Jesus, who is very God of very God, came out of her womb. She's the God-bearer. And, and calling Mary the mother of God, I think, forces us to recognize this point. Jesus, this first century man, is who Christians claim is God. When we say the word God, we mean something very specific by it. We're not talking about the generic God that you can put on a dollar bill and have everybody agree with it. Right? What, what Christians mean when they say the word God is not what other people mean when they say the word God. We're talking about the triune one. We're talking about the one who was fully revealed in the first century Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. We're talking about the one who came out of Mary. This is who Christians call God. This is who we worship as God. Oftentimes, what we do with the word God is we, we define God by the lowest common denominator. So we try to shrink it down to what everyone can agree on, and then we, we use that as God. Okay? And what you get is usually a God who's moralistic. Okay? A God who, for the most part, wants people to be good. He wants you to avoid really evil things. Okay? Don't kill people. Don't do all those kind of evil things. Hold doors open for people. Be nice to people, okay? He kind of has this moralistic tendency to him. He would rather you be a good person than a bad person. Now, there's no real specifics on that, right? But if you're faced with an ethical choice, choose the better, okay? You can define that. You can figure that out. God is usually seen as kind of this therapeutic God, okay? Whoever he is, wherever he is, he wants you to feel okay about yourself. He wants you to, He's kind of the Dr. Phil God, right? He wants you to stop crying. He wants you to stop being confused, okay? He wants you to, to, to feel good and feel comfortable and feel safe. And he's also usually a deistic God. So a God who's far away. A God who's not really involved in the world, okay? Every now and then he might come in and surprise us, and we call that a miracle. But for the most part, he's created the world, and it operates the way it's supposed to operate. Now, the God of the Scriptures, the triune God, the God who becomes a human being, is not this kind of God. He's not a moralistic God who has this general sense that people need to be better, Right? The God of the Scriptures comes in and says, you're dead, and I need to make you alive. And that's not a few socially acceptable hot-button issues you'll now vote on and support. This is a radical from the core of your being transformation. And the God of the Scriptures is not necessarily a therapeutic God. Okay? He does love us, and he does give us his grace, and he does call us sons and daughters. And there is this intensely therapeutic aspect to that. But the God of the Scriptures is okay with people struggling. And it's okay with people confused. And in the dark for a little bit. The God of Scripture sometimes calls people to suffer. The God of Scripture himself suffers, dies, cries. <coughs> Jesus weeps. And the God of the Scriptures is not a deistic God. When you read through the Scriptures, God is involved in daily life. I mean, he gets down to the nitty-gritty, dirty details of what human beings are doing. 
And if you've ever asked yourself the question, why doesn't God act like he used to act in the Bible? Ding, 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 right? You've, you've adopted a more deistic view of God than a scriptural view of God. We, I mean, watch the prayers. When you apologize for asking God to do something, that's proof that you're in this kind of deistic worldview, okay? So we'll pray for God to heal people, but then never, never miss it. At the end of the prayer, right? God, please heal this person. But if you don't, we've got things under control, okay? We've got our doctors, we've got our medicine, we'll figure this thing out. If it's not on your will, we're okay. We don't want to impose on you, okay? We're not going to be disappointed in you if you don't do anything. I mean, we even kind of cop out of our prayers to ask God to do something. We think it's un- unseemly of God. We think he's probably not going to do something. And that's not the God presented in the scriptures. And nothing in the scriptures would make you think he's changed his ways at all. And I think if you really get to know people who love the Lord and follow him closely, you'll see that they have the same kind of experiences. They, they have the same kind of experience of God involved in the day-to-day world. This is the God of the scriptures, the triune one, the one revealed through Jesus, the one present and active in the church through the Holy Spirit. Our God is a God who cares deeply about the world, who cares deeply about his people. Our God is the one who gave us the Sermon on the Mount. If you really want to know what makes our God different from other gods, you really want to define God, go read Matthew 5-7. through This is our God's marching orders for his people, the Sermon on the Mount. And trusting this God means a whole lot more. It's more specific than trusting a vague, generic God who might support our middle-class lifestyle or our national agenda. Okay, the God of the scriptures is a God who makes us uncomfortable, a God who breaks out of our boundaries, a God who often does not share all of our opinions, a God who we often have to unlearn things in order to follow, in order to trust. So you always want to be careful. I, that's my fear when we use the word trusting God, right? We'll just be trusting this kind of amorphic God, this kind of vague, general, ambiguous sense of God who just wants us to be good people, is not too involved with our lives. That's not the God we trust. We trust the God who is crucified and risen, who's calling his church to a very specific mission in the world. So the, the who of trusting God, well, it's the God of the scriptures. Now, the why of trusting God. Why do we trust God? I think this is a very important point um, to ask and to talk about. A lot of us, I think, still think of God as this sort of ancient Greek Zeus-like character. So God's up there. He's a little angry every now and then. He throws on lightning bolts, okay? He, he gets kind of picky about certain things. He holds grudges. He's kind of arbitrary in the way he acts. But again, notice, that's not the God that you're presented with in the scriptures. I mean, even Mary, throughout this, it's good news. Don't be afraid. It's God fulfilling his promises to Israel and the world. The why, the why of why we trust God is that God is good. And God is good and, you know the saying? You know what the, the response is, okay? God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. There you go. Get into church now. Come on now. Yeah, Christians trust God because we believe God has revealed himself, his character, to be consistently good. James 1, 16, 17 says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James, don't be deceived. Don't get confused by different pictures of God. Good gifts come from the Father. He is the Father of light, and there's no shadow within him. There's no turning within him. There's not a dark part within him. He is good. Psalm 118.1, give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Indeed, when God revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus, this is the God we saw. 
a God whose love breaks all boundaries, a God who um, dies out of love for us. On the cross, you're seeing the most accurate picture of God you could possibly get. God fully revealed in the face of Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Not paying back people for their sins, but a God willing to suffer and absorb the punishment, absorb the wrath himself so that others might find life. First John would say God is love from eternity, the triune one existing in relationship of love with each other. Love is not something God does, it's who he is. And everything God does is a part of his character of love, his character of, of goodness. Christians are people who have come to realize that even God's laws are part of his loving, good character. I think sometimes if you trace back sin, okay? So when we disobey, when we don't trust God, I think you can trace it back to one of, of two beliefs, okay? When God tells us, don't go over here, don't go to X, okay? And we still go to X, oftentimes the reason is because we don't really believe that God is good. We don't believe he has our best interests at heart when he says, don't touch this. We think, you know what? That's going to make me happy. That's going to satisfy me. He wants me to miss out on that. I'm going to go get it. Think about this. This is the very first sin of humanity. Adam and Eve go, God doesn't want us to have that tree. There must be something really good about that tree. They don't trust that God really has their best interest at heart. And so they, they run after it themselves. They go to try to, to seek satisfaction and pleasure and life in a place where God has said, no, it's not found there. It's not that God's withholding things from us. It's that God is showing us the way of life. Or when God says, don't go to X and we go to X, it's because we don't think God knows everything, right? We don't think he knows best. He might actually want what's best for us, but he doesn't know what's best for us in this situation, okay? God tells me to love everybody, love my neighbor, even love my enemies, but Jesus did not see this person coming, okay? She burns kitties with her eyes, okay? It's just, if he knew her, he would change the rules. There'd be an asterisk in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't, he didn't know best when he told me to do this. He didn't know what it was going to do in the world. He didn't know what it was going to cause me to feel and experience. So we disobey, we don't trust him. But Christians are those who've learned that even his leading us um, to things, his rules, even the things he requires us to repent of, these are for our good because he is good. Christians have come to believe that even judgment, even, even God's judgment is a part of his redemptive plan. We often think of judgment this negative term, right? But it's really, I mean, try to think of it in a neutral term where you just say what's good and what's wrong, what's right and what's, what's evil. If you ever want to live in a world where there's peace and joy and justice and beauty and life, you desperately need God to come in and make a judgment and say, this is not allowed. And these types of actions are not allowed. These types of people are not allowed. This is not going to be here anymore. Even his judgment, the prophets would say, is just a part, it's a step of his redemptive plan. Why do we trust God? Why do we want to respond like Mary responded? Because like Mary, we realize that he has good things in the store for us. We realize that he's good, and so we, we open our hands and we trust him completely. The who, the why, and now the what of trusting God. What does trusting God look like? I think two things. One, radical obedience, and then joyful hope. Radical obedience and joyful hope. So Mary has her hands open with her life. Um, notice that her obedience, it gets her in trouble. Okay? She's on the run. She experiences sorrow throughout her life as Jesus um, grows up, goes through his ministry. She's there when Jesus dies. Her obedience is costly. Her obedience is scary. 
her obedience is, is um, dangerous. And we want our obedience to be like Mary's. We want it to not be normal. Does that make sense? We want our obedience to make people do a double take. Why, why would someone act like that? We want our obedience to be, the word I like to use is distinctively Christian. To where the only explanation for why a person would act like that is because they believe the things that the scriptures say about the world and about God and about his salvation. There's no other, there's no other way to explain it. There's, there's no other explanation for it. We want to have the kind of faith that sacrifices, that truly trusts. So, so here's something that I ask you this morning. Do you trust God? And then let me ask you this. Do you have a reason to trust God? Do you have a need to trust God? Is there something you need to trust God about? If God didn't come through for you, would you be okay? Like right now? Like in this life? I get, right, the classic kind of Christian answer, like, well, no, because I, I wouldn't go to heaven after I die. But, like, but now, next week, in four years, in, in 20 years, would you be okay if God wasn't real, if God didn't move in your behalf, if God didn't protect you? What if that told you that you're really not trusting God with your whole life? You've got a backup plan. And what if people who, who looked at your life were able to see right through that? And it will say, you talk a big game about trusting God. But it looks like you've got it figured out yourself. Sometimes I think we make God, we make Jesus the like icing on the cake for the American dream, right? We've figured out all ourselves. I mean, we don't really need to trust God to come through on things. It's just an added bonus. If he doesn't come through, we, we're, we still got our, our bank accounts, we still got our houses, we still got all our stuff, right? We're still this comfortable, comfortable, wealthy person. I think our affluence, right, sometimes makes it so hard for us to trust God. So one of my favorite stories was in Kenya a few years ago and, and, and met a young lady who um, often goes without eating. Very poor kind of place in the world. And as I was talking to her about this, it was, it was surprising the way she framed the whole experience, okay? She said, um, we were talking about faith and praying, and she said, yeah, I, every day I'm trusting God to provide me with food. I don't, when I wake up, I honestly don't know where my food is coming from. I don't know if it's going to come. And she says, if it doesn't come, I take that as a sign that God wants me to fast. And I thought, what in the world? So either she, she trusts God, and either she gets the gift of food for the day to nourish her, or she gets another gift to draw closer to the Lord through fasting. It's a win-win for her. She trusts God. She, she thinks he's good. And I'm like, okay, just if you take that kind of trust in God and you compare it with my kind of trust in God, it's worlds apart. My kind of trust in God is trying really hard to remember to pray before I eat. Do you see the difference between the two? I mean, there's just this big difference. When I need food, I walk across, I walk across the room and, and go to the cabinet stocked with food. And I remember talking to them. Um, they couldn't understand that I ate something different every day. They eat this, if they eat every day, they eat the same meal for lunch and, and dinner and, and breakfast. And they're like, so what would you eat on like a Thursday night? And I was like, whatever I felt like. I don't... And they're like, what do, you, what do you mean? I said, well, I would, around the time I got hungry, I would sit down and think, what do I want to eat? Do I want to go here? Do I want to do this? Do I want to make this? Do I want to do this? And, and they literally didn't have a place to put that in their mind. right? Now, because of that, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Right? I'm not saying that, that we should feel guilty because we can eat meals, right? I'm saying we need to recognize that that inhibits us in a certain sense from really trusting God. That takes away something in our life that we need to trust God for. We think we're self-sufficient in that area. 
And oftentimes this is a pseudo self-sufficiency, right? Because you are one phone call away from your whole world being blown up. One doctor's visit away, right? I mean, you might have your, your cabinets packed, but all it takes is one MRI, right? I mean, often this is a pseudo self-sufficiency we get built up. Um, I think that's one of the things the poor have to teach us, that we're not really as in control of our lives as we like to think. It's one of the things I think special needs people have to teach us as well, is that we're more creatures who receive gifts from God than we often realize. What does trusting God look like? Well, it looks like obedience. It looks like, it looks like opening your hands up and saying, I'll, I'll risk, I'll sacrifice, I'll step out in faith. And if you don't come through for me, I'm, I'm just going to be left hanging here because I've put it all on the table. I haven't left anything back. I haven't saved a little bit just in case this didn't work out for me. I've bet the whole house on this. And that's what you see Mary do. And that's the kind of faith that we want to have. Radical obedience. And then we want to have a faith that, that comes with joyful hope. Mary had opened up her hands to receive God's good gifts. And we want to have our hands open expecting the good news of God to, to come through for us. We, we trust God to provide for our lives. We trust God to provide for the world. And we trust God to provide for our future, the world's future. There's something severely, I would say, wrong with a person or a group that is constantly pessimistic. I'll just say it's, it's not the kind of hope you see in the scriptures, okay? Something in particular like a news show, right? Where it's 24-7, blame and doom, right? I don't think that's healthy for Christians. I don't think that's healthy to cultivate the kind of hope that Christians have that the world will work out in the end. No matter what it goes through, right? There's going to be bumps. There's nothing wrong with calling out the bumps and saying that's not good. There's nothing wrong with saying that needs to be changed. But with this faith that... The one in charge of history is not the nations, and it's not our decisions. It's the one who died and raised again. And the one who's in charge of my life is not myself, ultimately. It's not the people around me, whether they'll take care of me or love me the right way, but it's the one who died and rose again. And I have open hands trusting God for my future, the future of the world, the future of our nation, the future of my kids. He is the one who's sovereign. He is the one who's good. And he's the one I'm waiting expectantly to come good on his promises. We have open hands. We have this joyful hope. I think Mary embodies all of this for us so perfectly. So we'll close this morning. I'll ask you a question. This is the question. Do you have open hands? Is there something in your life, a part of your life, something you, you have or own or do or, or are, that you've closed your hands around? You've said, this is, this is mine can't trust you with this there's something you've kept off the table or are your hands closed when you think about the future you just think there's no way this could turn out right there's no way that there's no way that God could do what he does all throughout the scriptures to take dark situations and turn them into light where, where do you need to open your hands and then again because we're talking about as a church I mean, where as a church are our hands open and our hands closed there's a question I'm asking our, our, our members here. Tell me, where can we open our hands up as a church? By God's grace, the power of spirit, maybe we would grow to embody the faith that Mary, Mary provides an example for here. Maybe we would be quick to say yes and to follow and to trust, to obey, to sacrifice, to hope. 
May we would say, we're your servant. Let it be according to us, according to your word. May we with the psalmist say, I trust in you, Lord. You are my God. Let's pray together.